My name is Dan McDonald. I'm a fiddle player from Cape Breton Island, and you are listening to Talking Blues. So, you come from a huge family and a very yes. musical family. Yes, I mean, not, not all of us are musical, but certainly my parents were quite musical. And so some of us are, there's a few, there's a couple of us that do it for a living, actually a few of us, uh, and a few that just do it for fun as well as their usual career and some that don't touch it at all. Okay, so I know your dad was a musician. Yeah. Um, does that go back further? It goes back. Is your grandfather? Uh, yes, my grandfather was also a fiddle player. Now, apparently, I didn't know him. None of us did, because uh, uh, his name was uh, Jim James, and uh, he was killed in the coal mine at the age of thirty-one. And my father would have been uh, would have been six months old at the time. And uh, so my father was brought up by his aunt and uncle Jack and Lizzie. Lizzie was his biological aunt, and Jack was uh, her husband, and he. Uh, he was the one that was really mad for the music and apparently there's a story about him saving up money in the summertime to get a fiddle and then his father heard him scratching away on it and came and said we don't have time for that here and put it in the fireplace and stuff like that and and so he was the one that really wanted dad to play the fiddle and so he got him a fiddle got him lessons and uh tried to find music for him to play you know wow yeah um i'm, I'm curious when you have a family of 11 kids yeah 12 and, and obviously 12 12 kids <laughs> yeah and obviously music is all around the house and um how does one choose the music and how do some of them not play music how does that work well apparently like uh, you know i'm number 11 of the 12 so there was there's 20 years between old, me and my oldest brother um and i actually met him and my other brother uh, when I was six, when they came back from Calgary, you know, that's when I met them, uh, and because they had already kind of gone off and done stuff for a while, and then come back home. So right. uh, when my father, uh, when my father was a kid, he took uh, violin lessons and fiddle lessons, and uh, he actually, when he was a teenager, he got an offer from the Royal Conservatory to come and study violin here in Toronto, uh, but he turned that down because he started a car business. Uh, I think it was like nineteen sixty something like that he he uh 67 i think he started a uh a dealership a datsun dealership okay and uh and so he you, he built that business and it ended up being uh, at, in the end just when he died he had six car dealerships and uh hundreds wow. of employees and so he kind of went that direction and my oldest brother said that when they were growing up there was no music he didn't play so he took about 20 years off of playing uh, because he was just focused on building this business and feeding all these kids, the 10 kids that he had at the time. So there was no music for, uh, right up until my brother Sean, who's six years older than me, and he's a wicked fiddle player. He also has a degree from Acadia Violin, and he works at the car dealership back in Cape Breton. But uh, when he started learning uh, fiddle and violin, uh, when he was uh, six or seven, he started coming on real strong, and uh, Dad, I guess, got inspired. He started doing it along with him, picking it back up again. And the next thing you know, they're going over to Scotland in the summertime. Wow. Yeah. So, and then for me and my brother, Marty, we kind of had no choice about it. It was just, you know, it was just <laughs> what we were supposed to be doing. Like, I remember my mom did say to me once when I was about six, I think, because I had been playing a little bit of, playing around with the fiddle a little bit, you know. And uh, she said, okay, Danny, you're six, you know, uh, you're going to have to play something. So what's it going to be? And I said, I want to play the spoons. And she says, you can't do anything with the spoons. You're going to have to play the fiddle. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of just what happened. <laughs> so much for giving you a choice. Yeah, really? <laughs> and then, yeah, my brother started on fiddle, Marty. He started on fiddle. And then at some point he was about 10 and he kept playing it on his lap instead. And then my parents got the message and got him a cello and he went on to study cello at Memorial University. Okay, so how, what do you think it is about your family that the people who decided to take this further became professional musicians of various degrees? Like, uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's very interesting. Now, my oldest, my one of my oldest brothers, Paul, uh, he's number three in the lineup. Uh, 
He's uh, he's actually a record producer. He uh, re- he produced a record for Jerry Holland and Natalie McMaster's first instructional DVDs. He did wow. the sound engineer. He's had a lot of great records. He's got a specialty for acoustic recording, uh, where he uses no you know no effects or no stuff like that. It's just a, he's got a stereo pair. Uh, he actually built the mic himself out of maple. Um, it's right. like uh, it's like one of these PZM pressure zone mics uh, built out of out of maple and some rewiring and stuff. And <laughs> so actually, like for instance, the record that I that he helped me make, uh, Rural Urban, was recorded at 100 and, 196 uh, kilohertz. So it's the highest uh, the highest resolution fiddle record ever made. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so he actually is a musician. He plays guitar. Uh, he went to St. Effects. He did a, a two-year jazz studies like I did on drums, on guitar. And he's played with lots of people over the years, over in Ireland and Scotland, down the States. And and he also produces records. So he, he had to kind of uh, uh, pave the way for people being professional musicians in my family because even though my parents encouraged us musically when we were growing up, they didn't really encourage it as a living. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough living, right? So it's... It is, yeah, which they tried to tell us many times. But so Paul kind of, he, he was the trailblazer in that way, and it wasn't easy for him. Now, it was a little easier for us because they had been pouring, you know, the, the investment into us, taking us up to Halifax every two weeks for lessons, uh, competing in the, in the music festivals, and going on the road in the summers as a band over in England and Scotland. So they, you know, so it was a little easier for us, but it still was not easy. They didn't think it was a good idea. And it wasn't until I had been doing it for like a decade that they finally figured out that it was working out. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd been married for 10 years, too. Tell me about growing up in that musical environment, because automatically you picture, you know, house parties or kitchen parties or just family parties singing along and doing this thing. And I presume that's that's probably a, was a reality in your family in a way you know like uh, we definitely had house parties but they were but but my family's parties themselves didn't didn't often include a whole lot of music like well because we would get together a couple of times a year as a big family there's like 40 of us when we all get together eh? right <clears throat> and so mother's day and boxing day are the two big days of the year that we all get together and uh, no music like we have a few tunes, but because of the because of the the older guys, they they didn't even know a jig from a reel. They had no idea about that. It wasn't until Sean came along that that was reintroduced. So they're not really, it's not really a thing for them, you know. Right. So the house parties were usually uh, had to do with uh, you know the greater musical community. Like my father was a part of an organization called Telecorum that brought, you know, artists that were around into Cape Breton to do shows and put on big concerts and stuff like that. And so so we would often have big parties at our house with different artists that were coming through and playing in Cape Breton. And they were great parties. They happened quite often. They were legendary. Okay, so what when you when you said you wanted to play the spoons and they they gave you the fiddle yeah um how how long did it take for you to take to the fiddle and and what did the fiddle when did you become a fiddler yeah it's a good question so like i when i was 17 i went off i did a two-year jazz diploma at saint effects on the drums and i didn't even bring my fiddle with me i remember being in the car my dad said so what are you bringing with you and i said well i got my drums i got my mandolin (laughs) I got my harmonica, and then, and that's it. And very sheepishly, and 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 I remember him saying, "So no fiddle, eh?" And I said, "No, you know." And uh, and then so I was a drummer for a long time. I lived in a few different cities, played with lots of different people, and it was a great time. And then I was living in Newfoundland at the time, and I was a drummer in a few different bands. Um, what and, kind of bands would there have been? So so they were like uh, the the main one that I played in was called the Eddie Stevens Quartet. And it was my friend Steve Edwards, and he he wrote songs. Some of them had a reggae feel, some of them had a sky type of feel. Others were straight up rock or or did a funky. Mm-hmm. We had a great bass player called Patty Dunn, who was like a Bella Fleck type of bass player, uh-huh. played with two hands. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he had this really cool thing that went underneath of it, everything, and so it was all the original original music, you know. Okay. Um, and it was for dancing, like. You know, that was my job when I was a drummer. 
I was playing in bars that were where people, you know, a hundred people would show up and want to dance. You know, you've been in the place. If you're a blues guy, you know, you've been yeah, in yeah. the places. It's like you got to make them shake the entire night, and so it was kind of like that. Okay. And uh, so, except it was original music. And uh, there was a couple of other bands like that that I played with. Reggae was a big thing at the time in St. John in St. John's, and so I played quite a bit of that. And uh, so this guy in, in the band, the Eddie Stevens Quartet, Craig Noseworthy, uh, was a, a, he played saxophone in our band, but he also played Irish flute. And uh, he knew my brother Paul, and he kept bugging me and saying that he knew that my family were were musical and they played the music, you know. <laughs> And uh, he kept asking me where my fiddle was. And finally, he convinced me, and I, I got my fiddle back from Dad, and I sat down with him. And I, it was quite a night. I still remember it. Like, the thing is about the fiddle and the drums, when I went to, to do my jazz diploma on drums, I had, like, no instruction on the drums. I had a few lessons, and when I showed up and I'd forgotten to bring the check with me, the the drum teacher said sorry my policy is you can't have your lesson you're gonna have to wait out here until your dad comes and when my dad came he was so upset that like he went right up one side of that guy and down the other so i didn't have any other drum lessons off of that guy (laughs) 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 which is understandable you know you leave a kid sitting in front of your studio for a half hour you know yeah yeah. Uh, but anyway yeah so so I went to school with very little instruction. So I got a certain way, and I certainly played lots of gigs over the years, but I didn't have near the skill that I already had had on the violin because of, just because of the way my parents, you know, took me to all those lessons and string camp in the summer a couple of times and stuff like that. So when I started playing fiddle, I realized right away that I already had half of the game in the bag. And it was fun. It was, it was so much fun. Like, I was so surprised at how much I took to the music right away. Now, it was Irish music at the time. And when I was growing up, we played mostly Scottish music with a little bit of Irish music. But being in Newfoundland, it was, you know, it was all Irish, and I took to it right away. I thought the melodies were awesome, not unlike jazz, all eighth notes, uh, a little, maybe a bit more diatonic, but not always. Okay, I have and, to go, uh, go back a little bit. So, sure. You wanted to play the spoons, you wound up with a fiddle. And at one point or another, you kind of went back to percussive music or playing the drums. I did. How did that happen? Okay, so when I was about 14, actually, that was another forcing issue. When I was 14, my mom, I had quit piano because I I didn't, I wasn't taken to the piano. (laughs) I did five years of Royal Conservatory piano, and I still can't play a note (laughs) to this, this day. Like I was good. Like I got, I got pretty far in the Kiwanis music festivals and stuff. All, all reading, you know. But now to this day, I can't do anything on the piano. So I, and when I was fourteen, I just told mom like it's not happening, and my teacher's a jerk and all that kind of stuff. So she allowed me to stop playing the piano, and I thought I was off scot free. And then a couple of weeks later, she said, "Okay, you're gonna take drum lessons." And I was like, "What? What do you mean? I'm already too busy. Just got <laughs> off a of piano." You know, why do I got to do that? And she was like, no, nope, you're doing it every Thursday. That's the way it is. And then my first drum lesson, I was hooked right away. I couldn't wait to come back. And then, you know, it wasn't long before I got a little band together with my buddies in North Sydney there. We had no bass player, of course. You can never <laughs> find a bass player. And uh, we were covering Jimi Hendrix stuff. And it was, to me, it was interesting to me also because... I, when I was growing up, my dad only played jigs and reels on the radio and on the stereo. He had lots of records, hundreds of records, and he never played anything but that stuff. And when we were dragged around to concerts and shows and on tour, it was always just diddly, diddly, diddly. And then when I went to, uh, when I went to jazz school, uh, and I, or sorry, when I went to high school, started playing with these guys and, and I was introduced to Jimi Hendrix and, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, for instance, uh, and uh, who Eric Clapton. Like, I'll never forget that. It was huge. And I, and I played the records out endlessly, <laughs> played along with them in my basement, you know. And so it kind of went like that. Okay, so when you went to school for drums, yep. did you know what you were hoping, what, what was the end goal of attending university for music? Well, I first of all, it was that my mom and dad said that I could, because before that the the 
deal was is that I was going to be an electrical engineer. Right. Because I, I was really into doing stuff with Mo. I built a robot, stuff like that. And uh, so, but but I realized when I started playing with my buddies, I realized right away that that was not what I wanted to do. And I had this picture of myself. I wanted to be a hired gun musician, uh, go playing in all kinds of different, uh, you know, bands or for singers or whatever. And I had this picture of myself with a with a drumstick bag over my shoulder, wandering down the street, and that's what I wanted. And so then my mom told me that Ryan McNeil from the Bear McNeils, he was I went to high school with him. Right. She said that he was going to do the two year jazz diploma at Saint FX, and that it was only two years. And if I wanted to do it, I could because then I could get on with what I was really going to do. And I was like, right on. <laughs> Basically, you never look back. Okay, but so, so you did that, and then toured a bit, and played around a lot, and and yeah, um, did all kinds of music, and then then yeah. all of a sudden you had this discovery or rediscovery of the fiddle. Uh, was it a yeah? Which co- yeah? Was that a difficult thing to say? Oh, I'm gonna give up the drums and go back to the fiddle. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say I gave up the drums. I do play in one band called Poor Angus. They're out of Hamilton. And uh, they, you know, they do some stuff in the States and stuff like that, big festivals. And, and I do play drums for them. I also play fiddle in the act a little bit as well. Oh. Um, and uh, and so I, don't, I wouldn't say I totally have stopped playing drums. But the, the fact is, is that I was a drummer and I was still gigging and stuff. My wife was doing her master's in Ohio on the tuba. Bowling Green, Ohio, and we lived there for two years, right? Can I just ask how you met your wife? Like, how does, sure, how does a fiddler meet a tuba player? Very good question. So uh, I lived in Yellowknife for, okay. for uh, almost two years. When I finished my jazz diploma, I went up straight up there because my sister lived up there. Okay. And uh, I lived there for almost two years, and I played a lot of music when I lived up there as a drummer. Uh, and uh, one of the guys in one of the bands that I played in he directed the Yellowknife City Jazz Band. And they had no drummer at the time, and so he forced me to go to the rehearsals. It was a terrible band. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if you can imagine the sound of a band like that, but uh, anyway. But it was still, they were really nice people, and, and so so I went on a Tuesday. Every Tuesday, Malcolm picked me up, and we, we went to this band practice. And then uh, when the summer started to come along, uh, Jennifer, my wife, who is from Yellowknife and grew up there, she went back after her first couple of years of university and uh, and to work there for the summer, you know. Right. And her friend Don McLeod, who played piano in the Yellowknife City Jazz Band, forced her to go to the rehearsals because <laughs> they had no bass player, right? Uh, and uh, so I was I and I worked at the time. I was a drummer. I was a I was the house drummer at a place called the Cave Club in Yellowknife, which was a blues bar. So at the Cave Club, I played with uh, uh, Back Alley John. I played with uh, Bill Bourne, with uh, uh, Big Dave McLean, oh, Ellen McElwain. Wow. Uh, who else? There was a whole bunch of acts. Uh, it was, you know, Pat Braden, the bass player. Um, I don't know if you ever heard that name, but no. it was me and him. Uh, we were kind of like the rhythm section, and these guys and girls would come up from down south and spend, say, two weeks playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday at this place. Right. And we were there. We were their rhythm section, basically, you know? Wow. Um, yeah, there's quite a few guys that I played with up there. It was really, really cool. But I also worked in a bus garage, the city bus garage, during the day with my day job. And it was hard work. So I was very often tired, very tired. And Jennifer said she noticed me because I was sleeping on my drum kit at the rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> in the reflection of the bell of her tuba she was watching me sleeping so we, we just got talking and then uh, it was just like that that's where I met her so, Wow! and she was going to school she did her undergrad in tuba at Memorial University as well and my brother did his undergrad on cello at Memorial University so when I went finished in Yellowknife I lived in Halifax for a while with my, my wife and, uh, and then uh, I moved to Newfoundland and and I did part of a philosophy degree there, but mostly just played music. <laughs> okay, so could you, if you wanted to, um, Cape Breton being one of the prettiest parts of Canada, but could you have made a living becoming a full time musician in Cape Breton? Oh no! I mean, I, like 
No, I and I discovered that like like shortly after I got back from my from my two year jazz diploma. Right. I was thinking, you know, okay, I'm going to try to make a go of it, play a few gigs, you know, catch a few things. And, you know, I go, I and, and I wasn't that familiar with that scene there because, like I said, it had been mostly church halls and, and dances and stuff with my family before that. We did, certainly didn't play any bars or anything. And even with my band from high school, we never had a chance to play anywhere. Like, that's what always amazes me when I moved to Ontario. Like, the, the opportunity here for young people... <laughs> is right. unbelievable you know we could we had no place to play so we, so i used to put on shows at the church hall in sydney mines the first one i put on i got you know there's a few bands in high school and we all put in money to to rent the church hall or whatever right. and and we put on the show and 600 kids showed up <laughs> 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 but yeah so I mean that when I got back from from my jazz diploma, I remembered that. I remember that there's not much of a scene unless you're playing jigs and reels, and even then, it's mostly for fun. Like that's what a lot of people don't understand about about uh, you know traditional musicians, is that back in those days, if you were playing the fiddle, it was certainly not your living. You know, you're right. you're doing something else, and you, the fiddle is what you did on the weekends. You know, so uh, certainly, certainly for my dad, that was the case. Right. So. So you really couldn't make a living doing that. Whenever you played with your family and, and toured around the, the, the Cape, it wasn't like you were making money off that. Well, I mean, I'm sure my dad made money. I never saw any of it. <laughs> <laughs> he was opening but for I another mean, dealership. I, yeah, well, it also cost a fortune to drag us around Scotland and England. I'm, I'm sure that there, he did not come out on, on top of those tours. Right, right. But... Uh, no, I, I knew that I knew and I knew some of the professional guys in Cape Breton when I was doing my degree and they didn't really make a living. So I did live there for I think it was a summer and I tried a few things. And nothing was happening. And that's why my sister said, you should come up here just for the adventure. Like, you know, not even having anything to do with music. I was I was 20 and she was like, this place is the Wild West. So I came right up. <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be such a place for music. I had no idea. Um, what would you have learned from that experience up in Yellowknife? I learned how to make a room full of people dance and for a good few hours. Because right. if you don't, if you can't do it up there, then, then it's going to get ugly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But at this point, I'm, I'm a little confused. Because at this point, you're still playing the drums? Or is, is a fiddle also in the picture now? Uh, when I lived in Yellowknife? Yeah. No, no. I, I was still not a fiddle player. I, I was just a drummer when I when I lived to, lived in Yellowknife. Okay, so yeah. basically all through your life, dance has been a big part of what you do, like what you support. Yeah, I mean it's I, I often the, I often say the fiddle and the drums. The only you know like you the fiddle and the drums can make a room full of people dance for about three hours. The only difference is with the drums is three trips to the car and you need a good bass player. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like there were many times when you didn't have a bass player. There were, yes, many times. <laughs> How does your drumming, um, your experience as a drummer, help you as a fiddler? Oh, there's no question it does. Like, first of all, I hit the thing like it's a drum. You know, a string is not unlike a drum when you have a bow in your hand. Um, you can really get a momentary kind of... Uh, sound and emphasis if you know what i mean yeah, yeah. if you approach it in the right way and uh but also more than anything it's just the sense of time it's just the kind of relentless kind of groove like when you're a drummer and you play say in a reggae band and you and you and the bass player lock in and the room is kind of swaying in the right way and you got that tempo and you know it's working and you know if if you let up it's going to stop working like that's the the way that i play the fiddle you know, whatever the tempo might be or whatever the feel might be, it's that same exact feeling, you know. Right. And then if I don't get that feeling, I realize that whatever the setup is, maybe it's who I'm playing with or whatever, it's just not working. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you when you went back to the fiddle and thought, wow, I, I know more than I thought I did. How long did it take yeah. for you to get back into it? And then then now you're kind of establishing a brand new career. How how did that happen? Well, it's an interesting, it, it, it was very interesting to me. It kind of happened a, a little bit by accident. So it was kind of taking hold. Like by the time I moved to Ohio, Craig had been making me play with him like a couple times a week for about 
about six months or seven months. And so by the time I went to Ohio, I was fully kind of like I liked doing it. I enjoyed doing it. And then my wife was doing her master's degree at the time. And I was there with her on a student visa. We had just got married and moved down there, right? Mm -hmm. So I wasn't allowed to get a job. Uh, I wasn't allowed to do anything. I was just supposed to sit there and, and you know, enjoy being there until she was done. Right. So, uh, so for the first couple of months, uh, there was really uh, literally nothing going on. We moved down there September 9th, 2001, if you can imagine that. So the place went bananas. And it, few days after we moved there i guess <clears throat> and, and it was a very strange time yeah, like yeah. it was you know especially living down there right in the heartland like at the time i had the ser i had the absolute honest feeling like the people around me thought that they were the other shoe was going to drop any day you know that's and it was a very scary time for them so so there was not much going on so i was basically sitting in the apartment and reacquainting reacquainting myself with the fiddle reading through some old books, reading through the old uh, uh, compilation scrapbooks that my dad used to make for us when I was growing up, you know, with tunes pasted in them. Right. And it was our, you know, I would have my name on it and I would have to learn all the tunes in the book type of thing. So I would just go back and just do that just for something to do because there was literally nothing else happening, you know. And then uh, I wandered down to the traditional Irish session because there's always a traditional <laughs> Irish session everywhere in the world. <laughs> Uh, even in fact, my dad was in Seoul once because he was closing a, a Kia a, a deal to open a Kia dealership, right? right? And he was in downtown Seoul, and he was walking down the street, and he said, "I hear a flute for sure, a fiddle too." And he, he walked a little further, and sure enough, there's a bar called O'Kim's, and he opens <laughs> the door, and there's two Korean guys, one playing the flute, one playing the fiddle, trying to play Morrison's jig. Wow. <laughs> so I went down to the coffee house where they were having the session and these really nice people who had a band called Tora um, uh, in Bowling Green for quite a while uh, I had a few tunes with them and the next thing you know they call me and they're like we have this gig and this gig and this gig would you be into it and of course I really needed the money so I said yes and so they were actually you know quite busy like playing little festivals and street performances and 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 you know things like that uh so i was kind of gigging right away on the fiddle if you know what i mean but technically you, um, you, you weren't allowed to work but technically no i was not allowed to work <laughs> <laughs> but you know i was already living down there so that's what i was doing and then uh when by the time we moved to toronto uh i was i was getting pretty busy and they actually had they actually uh, my first month living in toronto i spent every weekend going back down there to play gigs with them wow and then I hit the set. Now, I was still hoping to be a drummer, and I was playing a bit of drums at that time. I had a great gig with this blues guy. His name was Jerome Freeman. He called himself Hawk. He played 12-string. He, uh, he was from Canton, Ohio. And he played 12-string, and he sang. He was a beautiful singer. And there was another guy with him, Steve Carlo, who played six-string guitar slide and, uh, and mouth organ. And, and I played a very stripped-down drum kit, like it was Delta Blues style. Right. We went, we went down and played the King Biscuit Blues Festival in Helena, Arkansas. We oh. traveled all around Ohio. It was great. I loved it. It was great. Um, but, uh, but then when we moved to Toronto, I tried a little bit to play drums, but I got a gig at a music store when we moved here teaching drums. And there was three really awesome drummers teaching there, and way better than me. None of them could have had a gig. Nobody had a gig. Oh, you know. And I'm like, well, there's if these guys can't get a gig, there's no hope for me, you know. And I still, I still did kind of poke my head around the scene, but I went to an Irish session at Dark Heos. Right. And I went there a couple of couple of weeks in a row, and the guy Pat Simmons who led the session took me aside and said. Do you want to start doing this and this and this? And they had a band called Spree. So I played, do, started doing some gigs with them. Next thing you know, I'm doing gigs with this other person. Next thing you know, the fiddle is number one. It's all I'm doing. Okay, so tell me, what's the difference in, in, the, the, um, in the way you approach music as a fiddler versus as a drummer? Or is there a difference? Well, I mean, there's melody. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what the hell key you're in and stuff like that. 
Because, like, even though I did the diploma, I, I did, did terribly at the theory and stuff. Like, I flunked all that stuff, you know? And because, like, I've always been a good reader, but it's very linear. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, because yeah. the fiddle is very linear. It's, I never, ever think of chords in my life. It's always one note at a time, maybe two notes at a time, right? Right. So, uh, as a drummer, I didn't have to sweat that at all. You just listen. You get the feel of the keys as much as you need to. And, you know, that's you're good to go. But, yeah, playing the fiddle, like, especially when I started playing kind of commercially. Like, it's one thing to play jigs and reels. But it's another thing to improvise. And it's another thing to provide backing for a song in a nice, tasteful way where the singer doesn't get pissed off at you, you know? Okay, so... And it was, it was hard. Trial by fire. I do now, but I, <laughs> but I didn't for the lot. I remember my first bar gig when I moved to Toronto. Um, it was a band called Quagmire. And uh, I was a sub. And my friend Greg Cairns got me the gig. He was a big trad guy as well, right? He's a Scottish guy. And I guess he told the band, oh, this guy's a great fiddle player from the Cape Breton. He's the real thing. You know, you're going to love it. But I got there. I insisted on sitting down because my family always played sitting down. Right. Right. And I had no pickup on my fiddle. So I played into an SM58 mic in a loud downtown Toronto bar. <laughs> right. Had no ability to improvise and wondered where the hell all the jigs and reels were the entire night. <laughs> <laughs> So it was a trial by fire. I, I, I hooked up with this guy, Danny Williams, a long time ago. Uh, and uh, he was very kind and, and patient. And uh, we started doing some gigs together. And that's how I learned to do that stuff on the fiddle. Okay, so how, how does one learn to improvise after all this time? Because it's a concept well, that I find yeah. fascinating. Because, you know, as I said, I've talked to some classical musicians who are technically amazing. They can read notes off... Uh, sheet music and play it perfectly but yeah. ask him to improvise and some of them don't feel very they comfortable. They freeze up like yeah. a deer in the headlights. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, for <laughs> Which sure. Which is well, probably how you felt, right? In the beginning. I did. And so what I, but it was a lot of pressure because the other thing is is that like, uh, you know, like I said, my parents did never really wanted me to do it for a living. Like they were okay <laughs> with it after a while. But all this stuff, including the two-year jazz diploma and everything I did was all self-funded, right? right. So I kind of had absolutely no choice but to say yes to these gigs. And uh, so you just kind of learn, you know. My first attempts, I remember, all I did was play the melody. I couldn't stop playing the melody, you know, right. of the song. And it bugged the singer, usually because you know they're that's their job and that's and you're in their range they yeah, hate yeah. that when you're in their range right and i didn't have a sense of that so i was stuck to the melody and then the solo section would come and i would either play the melody or long notes right and so i got to a point one day i started to mess around a little bit more and get somewhere but i was like okay that's it man from now on when the when the solo is coming you're going to play eighth notes regardless of what it is now, the big thing that opened it up for me, though, was being involved in these gigs. Occasionally, I'd be playing and there'd be another fiddle player there from the downtown scene. Right. And, and it would always shock me how, how much they didn't mind playing, like, at a tune and scratchy and, st <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, they were, you know, like Charlie Daniels. Like, they're going, they're going like 120 and eighth notes, but half of them are wrong and the other half are at a tune. <laughs> And so I kind of thought to myself, like, like I got to do that, too. I got to be like a guy going through the rainforest with a machete. Just hack away. Just <laughs> play eighth notes and try to pay attention to when it's working, you know. And so that's basically how I got into it, was feeding off the melody and trying my best to just keep that momentum going. And, and it all seemed to kind of fill in. And now I can't wait for the solo coming. It's my favorite part. And how long did it take for you to feel comfortable improvising? Well, I, you know, I still, I wouldn't say I, that, I, that I do. You know, I don't think anybody really does. Like, I still sweat it like you wouldn't believe. But really? I would say, I would say it was like better part of a year by the, by the time I was starting to be happy. We, me and this guy, Danny Williams, who is a great singer. Uh, he's from here in Toronto. He's gone now, unfortunately. But... He grew up Pape and Danforth. His mom was from was from Derry, and his father was from Dublin. And this guy was a, a St. Michael's Boys Choir dude. Right. And uh, he played in classic albums live. 
he he played in uh, country music legends. Uh, the, the he did this big Stan Rogers tribute show. He he was a real talented kind of voice. Like he he did Bono's voice and Van Morrison's voice and wow. Willie Nelson. Stuff. Like he was really talented, right? So he had a regular gig down at McVeigh's pub on Church in Richmond. You know the one? Yes. Yes. Yeah, great spot. Been there. It's the oldest Irish pub in Toronto. I know the family really well. But anyway, uh, so he had a regular gig there twice a month, two nights a week, Friday and Saturday. And at the time, I was a drummer. He, he got me as a drummer, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I was playing with him as a drummer. And then the guy who owns the play, the family that owns the place, they're kind of jerks. And they cut the budget down, right? And so now they didn't, couldn't afford a drummer anymore. And so that meant I played the fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I was doing that with him over the course of like, say, a year and a half. And it was I'd say it was about a year, the better part of a year by the time I felt comfortable. And he was the perfect person to do it with because he wasn't afraid to tell me when it wasn't working, when I was crowding him in his range or or playing playing uh, uh, kind of busy stuff during the verses, you know, all that kind of stuff that you learn. He was very kind and patient, but hard as well. And so, so it was that, it was that process that really did it. And of course the crowd, like I had already, you know, done so much touring on the fiddle. I worked in an Irish dancing show for almost four years. We played three and a half month tours of England and Scotland and the continent and, you know, everywhere. So playing for 600 people in Ireland show. Is that the one? The magic of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, We used to call it the tragic of Ireland, (laughs) 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 but, uh, when you play for hundreds of people every night, you, you you really learn reactions and when it's working and when it's not working. You know, like I call it the board applause and the not board applause. You get to know <laughs> them, and so you just use that. Okay, you know, that's uh, what I did anyway. Um, I have to ask, and I'm sorry about the ignorance, but jigs and reels. You've mentioned those terms. I I think I know yep. what a jig is, but I'm not sure what a reel is. And tell me what. Well, tell me something. What's what do you think a jig is? Well, isn't it something to do with dance? Isn't that basically music? It is a, it is a dance, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay, so. Well, so, so that's as much as you know about a jig? Is that I'm it's sorry. a dance? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's such a good indicator. I get these questions all the time. You know, it's really interesting to me. But uh, basically, it's two different types of dancing, like step dancing, you know, right. uh, tap dancing, solo dancing. And, uh, and it's also group done in a group as well like sort of like square dancing but it's basically just two different time signatures so jigs are in six eight time so they go diddly 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 you get the idea yeah yeah two sets of triplets per measure okay and then reels are in four four so they go deedle dap a deedle dap a deedle dap a deedle dap kind of like rock and roll, you know. Huh. Um, and so, so that's the difference. That's what a reel is, and that's what a jig is. A jig is a six-eight dance, and a reel is a four-four dance. Okay. So the next question would be the difference between Scottish and Irish jigs. It's a very good question. So, well, first of all, uh, 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 Irish people invented jigs. Okay. Scottish people invented reels. So that's one thing. Right. Uh, so Irish had jigs before, and uh, then when the Scottish people started to come over there, that that's when reels got introduced by them. But what what I use to describe Irish and Scottish music, like the difference, they're very close. Eh? Like there's a famous Irish fiddle player from the northern part of Ireland, not Northern Ireland, but the very northern part of the Republic, if you right. know what I mean. Yeah. It's called Donegal. Right. And uh, a lot of Scottish influence there because back in the, back in the, what was it? The, I guess it would have been the 1600s um, when the, when the English had all these kind of plantations across that part of Ireland, um, there's Scottish laborers that used to go over there and work in these plantations. So they had quite a lot of Scottish influence. So there's this guy, Johnny Doherty is a very, very famous uh, uh, fiddler from Donegal that used to say, the difference between Scottish and Irish is only a thin sheet of paper. That was his saying. Hmm. And I always loved that. But what I, what I like to do, first of all, to describe it, Scottish music is very rhythmic. Okay? Its, it's ornaments are all rhythmic and done with the bow. Right. Okay? Irish music is very lyrical. 
and their ornaments are mostly done with the left hand. They're they're melodic ornaments. Oh, okay. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's the big difference. Like the the Irishman wants a bow that never ends. One big long line of music, you know? Whereas the Scottish guy, he turns his bow around all the time. He's always kind of he's always given that downbeat, that percussive kind of uh sound. And all the ornaments are done that way as well. Okay, here's another silly question. When I mm-hmm. watch you play, uh, uh, and I've seen some of your Facebook lessons and um, Facebook Live sessions that right. you've done, you don't hold the bow at the very end. <laughs> yes, never look at my bow hold. That's what I tell people <laughs> that I teach. You know, I show them when I teach people how to use the bow. I show show them the classical bow hold, and my brother Sean still uses that to this day. And that's that's, uh, that's because that's the hold at the very. Pretty well at the end of the bow, right? Yeah, right down at the frog, yeah. and uh, and you know with the thumb tucked under and all that kind of thing because that is the easy way. Like, you know, people often complain about teachers. They're like, oh, you know, he's always telling me that I'm doing it the wrong way and this is the correct way. And I always like to remind those people that the teacher is simply trying to show them the easy way. <laughs> So I always show people the easy way. What happened to me is that I held the bow properly, I'm pretty sure, up until about the time that I stopped playing. And then when I started playing again, I used the same elements in the bow hold that a, that a regular classical bow hold would use. But I just kind of deformed it over the years. In fact, you know, the thumb, your thumb is supposed to tuck up under the bow so that the round part is the fulcrum for a seesaw that the bow is, if you if you can picture yeah, yeah, that yeah. in your yeah. mind, right? So and so but I don't do that. My thumb kinda goes through the bow. In fact I've I've kinda formed this little saddle callus on the edge of my thumb that does the same job. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. Also the first finger is supposed to hook right around the stick, right? To be able to pull up on the bow as well as bear down on it. Right. But for some reason, my first finger goes right around the hair and everything. So that doesn't I don't affect know why. the way... Does, that, does it affect the way the notes come out of your instrument? Uh, you know, I don't think it really affects the, like, the sound production. You know, you, the thing is you can, you can achieve the same sound production with a variety of different ways of doing it. It's just that they all have kind of... Uh, uh, positives and negatives when it comes to what you can do you know right um i seem to be able to do everything i need to to do with that bow with my weirdo hold you know (laughs) the like like because you know me me and my brother sean i i don't know if you come from a musical family but when you come from a musical family there's a certain amount of competition involved right uh with me with me and my brother sean and my dad it was always intonation first of all and uh and then bow control was the other thing and so my brother sean he could bounce the bow like yasha heifetz i don't know if you've ever seen that but it's where they it's where they go sweep back and forth across the four strings and the bow is bouncing momentarily on each string to make a really clear articulate little note yeah yeah yeah. and if you picture arpeggios going back and forth with the bow bouncing it's like it's kind of a high like an advanced technique right right and Sean has always been able to do that. There's a famous tune called The Hangman's Reel, where you bounce the bow. And that was always Sean's parlor piece. He played it all over England and Scotland and everywhere, that, that tune, right? Um, and so I was bound and determined when I started to play the fiddle again that I was going to bounce the bow too. And I was really worried that my weirdo bow hold would not allow me to do that. And I, I, even to the point where I was considering redoing the whole thing, you know, because I found it hard to accept that I wouldn't be able to do that and Sean can do it. Wow. But anyway, I worked away at it and I can do it. No problem. Even with my weirdo bow hold. <laughs> so, so it, like people who would know about playing the fiddle would still look at you holding the bow and think that's a little unusual. It's not just well. Me. If it's an, if it was another fiddle player, they wouldn't. They would just think, "Oh my God, I got a weird thing too." <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, violinists. I I get that question from violinists all the time. But the, it's always been in the positive. Like that's what always shocked me about that because I my wife teaches at National Music Camp. Well, I also teach at yeah, National yeah. Music Camp. You know, have you ever heard of that up near Aurelia? I, I have heard of it. Yes. So Jen's been teaching there. It's going to be her thirteenth year teaching tuba there 
and they started a, pro a fiddle program. Uh, this would have been the third year that they run the fiddle program. First time in 57 years that they've run a fiddle program, and I was the one that started it, right? Right. Because uh, I've been going up there because, you know, taking care of my kids or whatever while Jennifer was teaching, I've been going up there for over 10 years. And uh, so I, I love to talk to the classical musicians that are there. Um, and and they uh, they have always it's been so funny they've all asked me about my bow hold right and then i you know i sheepishly shake my head and say i know it's ridiculous and they, but then they all say yes man but i wish i had your bow arm they've all said that and some of the staffers who are you know university students have come to me and said you have the best bow arm in camp and I'm like, yeah, but I clutch onto it like, you know, like a like a death grip. It's like, can you, can you, uh, can you um, explain the term bow arm? I mean, I think yeah, I know so what the, it is, but just just so I'm sure. Yeah, it's just the control over the bow, being able to make the right, bow okay. do things. Like, there's a famous quote from Yehudi Menuhin. Uh, Yehudi Menuhin is a very famous violinist, one of the best in the world, and uh, somebody asked him once because he was very forthcoming with teaching he loved to teach and so somebody asked him once how long does it take to master the violin right yeah. and he said for the left hand about eight years for the right hand nobody's finished yet <laughs> okay. it's the hardest part of playing the violin is the bow the left hand is a walk in the park the right hand is where the rubber meets the road everybody's different and that's the thing if you look at all the great violinists which i had an occasion to do because i used to work at the royal conservatory running the video conferencing machine oh and uh and and uh, so they did a class from uh, mount royal college in alberta and it was string technique and repertoire and it was educational about how the great masters what they decided to play to develop certain skills right and uh, so it was a great class for me because I got to I got to be there and they showed footage. That's what I love the most. They showed footage of all these old great master violinists. So you're talking about Yehudi Menuhin, Yasha Heifetz, Fritz Kreisler. Uh, that's enough. <laughs> there was more. And there was this one one Romanian guy that was just incredible. But anyway, what I looked at, I was looking at their bow arms and their bow holds. And I saw with the four different players, I saw four different bow holds. Slightly different each one. Yeah, yeah. See, it's a very individualized thing. And we're all trying to get our bow hold and our bow arm to be effortless. That's the whole thing with the fiddle. Like, you're trying to take the effort out. You're trying to do everything with just a nudge and a push. You know what I mean? Yes, for sure. And so that's what they're talking about. It's also referred to as the touch, you know, the touch of your bow against the strings. So when when people talk about fiddle players, they'll be like, you know, Jerry Holland had a beautiful touch. Right. Another silly question, and I'm sorry about bombarding all with stupid them. questions, but fiddle and violin, what's yep. the difference? So it's there's no difference. Uh, in fact, uh, the word fiddle is just a really old German word that means violin. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure, like I, I've talked to lots of people about it, and I, and it, it seems as if back when the back when the fiddle first actually started to make an appearance, because you know they had a fiddle type of thing, say in the 1500s, right? right. Uh, but it was very very quiet and very limited. I don't can't remember how many strings it had, but the the fiddle that you think of now really came on stream in the late 1600s, early 1700s, like. Like and Stradivari was the one that kind of perfected it to what you see today, and he was in the mid 1700s. Right. Okay, so the word fiddle goes back to the 1600s, and what people figure is at that time the the classical music was very limited. Like there was Baroque music, there was there was a little bit of stuff, but mostly there would have been folk music, and so that's why they figure the word fiddle became associated with folk music because in those days, if you had a violin, that's probably what you were playing on it. Did, did you ever consider doing anything in classical music or studying it? No, no, I can't. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I did do Suzuki when I was younger, and I, I competed in the Kiwanis Festival many times. And actually, one time I even got to the regional um, oh, wow. uh, competition, the province-wide competition, you know. 
But uh, no, I can't play a note without putting an ornament on it. <laughs> just too much personality. It just doesn't work out. And I, like I said, I know lots of classical. My wife is a classical musician. My brother too. It's a, I know what's involved in that. Like my wife takes four bars of music and she can show me how she can play it in like i don't know an infinite number of ways with intonation and with like for them being in tune being bang on in tune is just the beginning right they play around with it they do all <laughs> kinds of it's it's unbelievable it's like it's not not the direction that i could kind of go in with four bars of music it's just i i like making a room full of people dance man Okay, so when you do your teaching up north, and I, I guess yep. it, it, it might be everywhere that you teach, I mean, it's not oh, really yeah. a matter of using sheet music and reading notes. It's about Oh, no, I teach by ear. Yeah, I teach the, the in the old way, uh, which is completely by ear. Now, we do have books in our tradition. They're, they're really old, you know, hundreds of years old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, we're, but nobody learns music from them. Um, they're, they're references. They're like a dictionary. There was a great yeah. musician named Matt Minglewood. Oh, yeah. So, Matt Minglewood. <laughs> yeah. So when Matt comes to Toronto, he hasn't for a while, but when he does, and I presume it's the same thing when he goes across the country, that it just seems like when, when he plays at the venue, a lot of Cape Bretoners come out. Oh, yeah. Right? And then I yeah. presume that you probably have that same kind of thing where when you play a lot of people from the island come out and watch you absolutely i mean when i did my to like when i did my cd launch i was shocked and <laughs> the the thing is is that it's like it has to do with who's who's playing you know right. uh, but uh, i was playing a lot with sandy mcintyre who's a, a great fiddle player from cape breton that's been living here since the 50s right and uh he's he's quite a well-known figure and when he got to be uh, in his early 80s, his son, Brian, who I had done lots of pub gigs, gigs with over the years. Uh, Brian plays guitar yeah. and sings a bit. And I had done lots of pub gigs with him. And he called me and he said, Dad's getting pretty frail and he still wants to play, but we need somebody to play next to him, you know, like beef him up a bit. And he asked for you. So I started playing with him every Thursday and, uh, and the Cape Bretoner crowd would come out and and started to get to know me or whatever you know uh this is years ago this is a long time ago and then i did my cd launch and every one of them turned up <laughs> hugh's room was packed out the door there was over 200 people there wow yeah so it does happen for sure <laughs> okay one <laughs> my my final stupid music question is when sure. you play you seem to play I mean, it seems to be a bunch of stuff together. Like, it's not like one yep. jig, but it's like three jigs. The medley, yeah. Yeah, why is it? I mean, and even your recording is like that. Oh, yeah, that's the <laughs> that's the traditional approach. That's that's what we've always done. So you take, and, and in Cape Breton, like, there are set. they call them sets. They call the medleys of tunes sets, right. okay? And, uh, you know, the, I, I always say the difference between Irish and Scottish you were talking about there. Yeah. In in uh, in Cape Breton, people put sets together all of uh, all in the same key. Okay, okay. Yeah. so there'll, there'll be a Strathspey and three reels in the key of A minor. It's called the King George set, and people have been playing it for hundreds of years. And if anybody played those tunes at an order, you'd get all kinds of dirty looks from the <laughs> other people. You know, it's like, what? Why are you doing that? You know, um, and uh, but in Ireland. You also have the same thing. Like there's one set called the Holy Trinity. It's uh, three reels. The first one's in E minor. The second one's in G, and the last one's in D. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the Irish sets they often change key, whereas the Scottish ones they kind of stay in stay in the same key. But yeah, that's what we all that's what you do as a as a traditional musician. You curate the tunes. And you put together these sets that you think people are going to enjoy. And I, I really enjoy the key changes. That's kind of what I, one of the things that me and my band always do. I have a band, too, called North Atlantic Drift. Right. And uh, that's what we always do. We love to have nice key changes. But can you actually do, like, two Irish jigs and a, two Scottish jigs in one set? Or is that a, like a... Oh, we, that's... <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it depends on who you talk to, you know. Like, some people do think that's a no-no. I am not one of those people. Um, 
I've never been one of those people, even in Cape Breton. There's a there's a large part of Cape Bretoners that kind of think that way as well. It's like I, I don't find it useful. I mean, it's it's useful in a way of of learning about the heritage and stuff, you know, trying to find the correct origins of tunes or whatever. But I find it kind of exclusive. I don't really understand the point. <laughs> like, I understand the point if you're if you're trying to show people Scottish and Irish, right? Yeah. If you're trying to show them this is Scottish stuff, this is Irish stuff, you don't want them to, you don't want it to kind of, you don't want St. Paddy's Day and Robbie Burns Day to be the same day. You know what I mean? Right. It's like it's like swamp water at the at the for the slushy machine. It's not it's <laughs> yeah. not it's not really it's not going to help people understand, right? So for sure, if it's that type of situation, then I'm careful about it. But with with me and my band North Atlantic Drift, we like to take advantage of doing that type of thing. You know, right. Uh, like for instance, we'll play Scottish music on the Irish pipes. My buddy Ross, he does that. It's awesome. It's unusual. Nobody does it, and it's got a cool sound. And so we mess around with that stuff. But there are many purists who who would look down at that, you know, and think that you should stick to what you what you are supposed to be doing. Right. Okay. So the other thing is, yeah. when you've toured the world and you've gone into Europe, few countries. Yeah. So. When you play, how are you looked at as a Cape Bretoner playing, if, if you're in Scotland, playing Scottish jigs or in Ireland and playing Irish jigs? Is there, yeah. is there any biases towards you or do you bring something new to the table that, that they appreciate or not appreciate? Yes, you, usually that's what happens. Like, like when we went to Ireland last year, we did a tour in May of last year. We did a 10-day tour. Right. And they absolutely loved to hear the Cape Breton and Scottish stuff and even our, our kind of uh, taboo uh, sort of renditions of stuff. They loved it because it was different, you know. And and for instance, the Cape Breton stuff, like that's you know, it's well known that Irish people love that. And so to get an example of that, I think is really fun for them. Right. Um, that being said, uh, I find it hard to play in Cape Breton, uh, doing that stuff. Uh, people seem to get confused, like like between the two and they they like it to be more distinct more distinctly cape breton and sometimes when i go back there and play gigs with my brother i kind of have that in the back of my mind i don't do i don't play the loads of irish that i learned here in this city and i try i change my approach a tiny bit wow. you know and i still sometimes i still sometimes get dirty looks from the old fellas because <laughs> of my because of my irish influence now you know it's funny because but my dad loved Irish. Uh, uh, when he was when he was playing, he always included a bit of it, and he always there was a few players that he absolutely adored, you know. Right. So I have absolutely no problem with it at all, and I don't see what the point is of you know avoiding learning another language. I don't. I never. I under, never understood that. But certainly, I still do think about it when I go back to Cape Breton. I sometimes think about that, and I try to try to curb the the Irish stuff a little bit. Interesting. Um, in in yeah. your travels and also just your knowledge of music, we, we've talked about a lot about the Irish and, and the, the, the Scottish music, but are there other countries? Because every country has their own folk music. Are there other oh, countries yeah. that you've seen or heard that, that have something very similar? Oh, sure. I mean, well, I mean, you mean, you mean in terms of jigs and reels and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so for sure. I mean, uh, I don't know if you know about the other Celtic nations, but Brittany and France, right? Uh, their music is kind of similar because they're also Celtic people. They're descended from the same type of, of uh, people or whatever, the Celt. Right. And then also in Spain, Galatia in Spain, it's the northern part of Spain. They're also Celtic people. They play pipes, for instance, and it has a similar, it's not the same, but it's a similar type of uh, uh, sound. It's also eighth note based music. Right. And so, yeah, so those are kind of the other Scottish, or sorry, the other Celtic nations that you might not. But would you ever you play not... their music into your set? Oh, yeah, I play and, lots of that stuff. Oh, okay. And it would yeah, seem it. somewhat seamless? Well, no, you can tell. I mean, that's part of the fun. Like, that's why you asked about earlier, you asked me about the difference between Scottish music and Irish music, or you said jigs yeah. in, in particular. And I was about to play one side by side for you because I love doing that. 
I love putting the different types of music next to each other because then you can really tell the differences, you know? Right. Um, it's kind of like when you go to a Chinese buffet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah? When they're next to each other, you can tell the difference between the dis- dishes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, we love doing that. I always love doing that. Put, and, and that's one of the things, like, like when I get asked that at a at a workshop or whatever, I play an Irish jig next to a Scottish jig, and people's eyes go up like they totally understand the difference when you hear one than the other, you know? Right. Okay. So I always love doing that. I need to wrap this up soon, but I want to ask a couple more sure. things. One is that, you know, when we first connected, you, you said that you've been kind of busy trying to get the online thing happening. Um, yeah. And I, and I presume you're doing a lot of teaching. Who, who are yeah. your two students? Like, uh, I mean, my students, yeah. Are, like, I mean, is it every retirees? Okay. Uh, for the most part, uh, and uh, it like it is mostly white people, my right. students, uh, but that's not all. There's uh, a few Asian people, and uh, and you know, like, I don't know, whatever, miscellaneous. <laughs> okay, so it's <laughs> not it necessarily is... just Scottish and Irish, Cape Bretoners, whatever. Like, oh no, no, it's mostly. The 90% of my students are mainland Canadians, although I teach in, like I teach a guy in Chicago and I teach somebody in uh, in uh, Quebec and it's, you know, like a couple of different provinces. But for the most part, they're, they're what my dad would call upper Canadian white people, okay. retired, <laughs> for the most part. And how, most part. how has that adjustment been to, to um, do online teaching? Well, I've always I've always been a teacher. I've always loved teaching. That's one advantage that I have. Mo- many of us who who are professional musicians uh, have to teach and don't like it, you know. But luckily, I love it. So I've been I've been teaching for decades in this city, and I have a studio in my basement that I had people. I have about twenty people coming every week to right. to my studio, and then a couple of classes that I taught as well. So. So, and I always avoided the online thing just for the obvious reasons. Like you can't hear them properly. Yeah. You can't really, this is a few times when I, you know, like I'll touch their elbow with my bow to straighten this out or that out. You can't do any of that. So I always kind of avoided the online lessons. People would approach me about it from when I went to different uh, countries or festivals. They'd be like, do you teach on Skype? And I'd be always be kind of like, oh, you know, it's not that good. <laughs> so, so when, when, when the COVID thing hit... It took about a week, and my students started to get in touch and say, "Is there any chance we can use this thing called Zoom, and and do this, do our lesson?" Because you know they they had nothing else to do. Everybody was locked down. Right. So I reluctantly taught a couple of Zoom lessons, and I realized that there's actually really big advantages to teaching over Zoom. And so then I started to get into it, and next thing you know, I'm teaching every day for like three or four hours. And, uh, and also, it coincides that I'm taking over as music director for the Oakville Celtic Fiddle Orchestra in the fall. And it was, uh, this is something that happened over, over the winter. Right. The, uh, they've been going for a long time, and their music director's done, and they needed a new one. And so, so you know, I took the job, and, and I was going to take over in the fall. So I got in touch with the guy that started the orchestra and said, there's no chance we're going to be able to get together in person in the fall. You know, there's a, it's a group of about 40 fiddlers, eh? Wow. Out in Oakville. And uh, so I said, I think they're going to have to get used to the Zoom now. And so why don't we do a prep class uh, that's on Zoom to get ready for this new format in the fall. And we can learn some material and stuff like that. 30 people signed up. So for 10 weeks, every Tuesday, I had 30 people on a great big TV I got from my brother-in-law teaching them these tunes how do you do it with the delay they mute their microphone oh okay so i lead they they mute their microphone because i really don't have to hear them you know it's like that's not the most important part of the teaching process it actually works i found that it actually works better to not be with them and and not be a be a part of it be, uh, when they're playing when they're grinding away at their tune that they just learned because when they play with me i just make them sound good <laughs> you know and yeah, it yeah. really st- it really sets them back in terms of making a good sound or getting through it 
And so on the Zoom, there, you know, there was a few come to Jesus moments for a few people, but then they were able to carry on on their own. And I made them send me videos of their progress because, you know, it's, it's really hard and impossible to tell your sound yeah. over the Zoom thing because of the codec, right? right? But if they make a video and send it to me, then I can. And the process of making videos has improved a lot of them quite a lot. Wow. Yeah, and there's other things you can do. Like, because they're all muted, you can pull one person out, get them to play an example, suggest a couple of changes, they play it again, and everybody hears the improvement. All the 30 people, you see their heads nodding. And so it's such a more direct way to do it. I actually find that it's in a way better. Wow. Um yeah. I'm going to wrap this up, but let me ask you, you said you love teaching. Tell me, my last question is, what is it about teaching that you love so much? You always have to be on your toes. You, you, it doesn't matter how many people come into my studio. I'll never get to the end of the in, infinite different ways I have to say something for it to get through. It always astonishes me. <laughs> like, There's never a pattern. You can use a little bit of a pattern. But within the first 15 minutes, you're modifying and you're listening and you're trying to get through to this person. You know, it just seems to be no end of that. And that's what I always love about it. It's always a challenge. Like, I think, you know, my dad was a salesman, car salesman. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it might have something to do with that. It's just like, there's got to be a way that you can communicate with this person. (laughs) (laughs) How do I get you into this car? Yeah, because exactly. Or, or, you know, my brother, Jim, who is who's the dealer principal of all the car dealerships now, he's my oldest brother. And he told me he ne- he'll never forget it because the first car dealership had a gas pump. Right. Right. And this old fella pulled up in a heap of junk, an old jalopy that was dragging its arse on the road. Right. And and so dad goes up to the pump. And he starts pumping gas to the guy and he gets down and he starts talking to the old fella that's in the car. Just gently talking to him, having a few laughs, having a few chuckles. And he mentions about the state of the guy's car and how it's doing and dragging on the ground and all that kind of stuff. And then he just, and and, and Jimmy couldn't hear the conversation. He could just see it and watch it. And then by the time the gas had finished pumping, dad goes over to Jimmy and says, put this one in the used lot. This fellow's going to buy a new car. And that's what I love. It's, you know, it's talking to people. It's just getting, helping them understand how to do what they're trying to do. And it's just, I'll never get tired of it. Wow. Well, Dan, it was a yeah. real pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you this. too, Michael. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, this opportunity came up and I was thrilled. And, then, and it's been a, a lesson to me. So I'm, I'm hoping that someday soon that we will actually meet in person. I hope so too. But I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you.